This is Payments Innovation. We take you deep into the DNA of digital finance with some of the most respected voices in the industry. Let's dive in. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Payments Innovation Podcast. In this episode, we're talking about monetization in fintech and the path to profitability. I'm your host, Piers Murray, and I'm joined today by Lida Glyptis, Chief Client Officer at 10X Banking. Lida, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Um, I was checking, maybe slash stalking your LinkedIn profile a little <laughs> bit earlier. And I loved the the about section that you've got written there. And for anyone who's not seen it yet, it says fintech nerd who cares deeply about people, ideas, and doing things the right way for the right reasons. Also recovering banker. Loved it. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, perhaps we can just start there, you know, for, for people who, who don't know you, don't know 10X Banking, um, you could give us a, a potted overview of you, your background and, and what you're up to at 10X. So I am, as you say, I'm a recovering banker. I never planned to be a banker, but I did fall into it and discovered, but to my horror, that I was both good at it and really enjoyed it. So I have made my career in, in finance. I was a banker for many a year and I have crossed over to the to the other side and, and provide um, software solutions for banks. 10x sits in the space that says there's a lot that you need as a hygiene factor, but you don't need to build it yourself. It's a utility. Let us look after it. So we're a cloud native core banking system that understands the complexity and requirements for scalability, security, et cetera, of a fully digital stack for a big bank. And we are designed by bankers for bankers to help on that journey. Brilliant. Great overview. Thank you. So as I mentioned, we're going to be talking about monetization in fintech and the path to profitability, what that looks like. I suspect if we'd had this conversation a year or so ago, it probably would have taken a, a slightly different course. I think it's fair to say that the game has changed maybe over the last 12 or so months. I think this concept of growth at all costs, that model is perhaps dead, or at least at least for now. And, and definitely the conversation that we're seeing is around fintechs and probably the venture capital backers behind them. So rethinking some of their strategies, some of their operating and business models. So perhaps we can start there just to set the scene, share some of the context, share some of the, the, the views, the conversations that you've been having as well, specifically over the last 12 months or so. For those who couldn't see me while you've been talking, I've been nodding so vigorously and think my head might fall off because what you've described is, is absolutely right. It's where we are. Um, what got us here? Well, there, there are two answers to this, and they're very different, but they're actually true at the same time. One is the global climate change and uh, the commitments made during COVID. And I don't just mean in terms of government spending, but also in terms of human effort. And the fact that that had to be recouped at some point, combined with a global crisis, a war, the dreaded R word, recession, uh, meant that money, the way it used to flow, has pretty much dried up. Uh, banks find themselves quite a lot more confident in their current situation when they're in a high interest rate environment. The urgency to to find a lifeline isn't isn't what it was. But I would argue that the second half of the answer and maybe the most potent part is implicit in what you described, which is uh, we had a mindset, a VC-driven mindset that treated profitability and viability as a secondary and sort of less lofty thought. 
So a lot of the VC inspired stroke imposed, depending on how charitable you want to be, metric that companies have been playing to to get to the next round of investment, net, next valuation, if they're lucky and exit, have been about customer acquisition, a bit about growth, a bit about market share at whatever cost. And the discipline of looking at your unit economics, the discipline of knowing what your business model is and how it stacks up hasn't necessarily been a requirement. Now, arguably, you look at some of the companies that have done this well, and they were crystal clear from the beginning. And Oak North, for instance, had been crystal clear at the beginning what their business model is. Many others had followed the, the guidance of their VC overlords. And uh, and now that the rule is changing, there are so many entities that are like, well, how do I reverse back into thinking about the future differently? I gave a presentation on Money 2020 about 10 years ago, eight years ago, called Money is Not a Dirty Word. And my entire presentation was about the fact that we're in finance, no matter which way you look at it, investments, partnerships, digital initiatives inside banks at the time never talked about ROI, ROE, never talked about the unit economics at scale. It was all about innovation, growth, creativity. Now, thankfully, that era is gone, but it hasn't been replaced by something coherent and relevant yet. You make it sound really simple. You talk about actually the business model, the fundamentals. And I think when I think about growth at all costs, it's really about sort of fundamentals and profitability. Apart from some of the funding, why do you think more businesses haven't taken that approach to applying, really thinking about that business model? You're right. It's simple. That doesn't make it easy, though. And it's fair to say that the big established businesses are plagued by this as well. Now, I had this conversation with someone yesterday about the fact that a big established entity should stop diluting their efforts and impact and really focus on a set of simple questions. What are you doing? Who is it for? Why are they currently buying you over the competition? What can you do to protect that market share? What can you do, if anything, to widen that market share, either in terms of services, so depth, or additional demographics or width? This is your business model, right? What, what are the things you need to do to keep winning? What is the cost of doing those things? And do you have the right toolkit? Now, this is a question that you need to ask yourself as an established business or a new business. Mm. If you can answer those questions, you can have absolute focus and not waste time and effort on other things. But if you're wrong, you're screwed. So when you look at a big organization, you see hedging uh, on a variety of projects and, and entities. You see hesitation because everyone knows that you should focus. But nobody knows 100% what you should focus on. So it's simple, but it's not easy. And it becomes even harder when you don't have that profitability to work backwards from. If you're an entity that has a, a mission and a plan, but they don't yet know if their product has product market fit, what their customers are willing to pay and how long for. So you're a bit of a, on a wing and a prayer and, and conviction. And the people who share your conviction and fund it tell you that they will continue helping you if you achieve X you do it. Of course you do. Pushing you on that path effectively. Right. Um, and I really, again, like love the way that you frame this. I think as a, as a product person, I often think about the, the kind of lean canvas template, but it comes back to some of those fundamentals, those, those ideas of uh, your value proposition, the competitor analysis, like how, why are customers actually choosing to buy the product or service that right. you've chosen to build and, and, and deliver to them? Why are they buying this? Why are they buying it from you? 
Why are they paying what they're paying? And is there anything that will change any of those factors in the immediate future? Like even if you are established, you need to be asking these questions. Yeah. How has that conversation changed in the last you know, year or so for, for you and for 10X? Is there a different emphasis on kind of partnerships and relationships and, and service provision or has that m- remained unaffected? I must admit that from a 10X perspective, we have definitely witnessed the change around us. We have more long-term patient capital because we're founded by an ex-banker who's still very much running the show and, and he's a chairman of our board and, and a major shareholder. And we're B2B as well, which, which also makes it different. But we never had the, the push that some uh, B2C startups have had to customer acquisition at all cost, unit economics blowing up. We're definitely seeing pressure around us. I mean, I not to name names, but we're seeing big companies withdraw from markets that they had thrown a lot of money at. We're seeing companies shut down, return their licenses. It's sad to see. Like I've been saying as an individual, I've been saying that we're due a consolidation. There's just too much, too much easy money, too many companies doing very similar things, too much expansion, too many paper millionaires. And uh, consolidation was inevitable. Watching it happen is painful, particularly for someone who's been in the industry so long. And like these companies have faces, they have names, they're people we know. So the fact that 10X is navigating this difficult time unscathed doesn't mean that it's 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 a it's a hard time. I think long term it's a necessary correction, but I do think there is a, a responsibility of of all players, VCs in particular, to not the boom and bust is part of the of the deal, but to not let this happen again like this next time. Because if you look back to some of the most spectacular falls from grace we've seen in recent months. If you told your grandmother the story of what happened without assuming any prior knowledge of the industry and you just gave the facts, wouldn't she say, nobody predicted that? It's a really good question. And, and there is this element of how do, we, how do we continue to learn from these repeated cycles, right? They, they do seem to come around in waves and, and yet perhaps some of those lessons aren't being learned. What are perhaps some of the consequences of this? Is this going to lead to a lack of maybe levels of innovation, of competition in certain parts of the market? There are some inevitable negative effects that we have to talk about and then some hope at the end of the tunnel. Um, the negative effects are that those who didn't believe any of this would work now have what they consider proof points. And you and I could argue that actually A and B happened at the same time, but they're not interchangeable, but it's potato potato for quite a lot of of the detractors. And I do think that with valuations tumbling, um, companies withdrawing, as we said, quite a few charters have been returned, narrow interest banks or some of the challengers and some geographies closing the doors um, in a high interest rate environment, could lead a lot of banks going, I don't need this. I'm fine. Um, And you're definitely seeing a little bit of that. I don't think that will last, but I think short term, there might be an element of this. I think there's going to be a flood of talent in the market. For those who are clever and have their eyes open, there could be incredible creativity to be snapped up. I think there'll be a little bit of a shock to the system. There was a time I sat in an innovation hall in a big bank around the sort of 2012 mark where everyone was resigning and starting startups. I think that belief and like the gold rush of fintech of everyone and and their friends from university starting a company, that entrepreneurial madness will um, dissipate. I think there'll be much more reluctance. I think there will be much more of a realization that it's a dangerous step. 
that it comes with risks. That doesn't mean people won't do it, but I think people will do it in, in smaller numbers. And I do think that alongside with the noise, of which there's a lot, we're going to lose some very good ideas. That said, I think people who are at a seed stage now or maybe coming up to a series A will have the attention of seasoned executives and seasoned investors in a way they wouldn't have done before. Mm. Because sadly, or if you're at the right end of this, luckily, VCs know not to feed the boom cycle. It's hard to do it with a series E company, very easy to do it with a series A company. So I think there will be much more sensible approaches and it might be a fantastic time um, to start a business, even though it doesn't look like it. And, and it's a really interesting point in terms of technological innovation and availability as well. When you think about the access to AI and machine learning, things from a technological point of view that have never been possible in, in years gone by, that's almost a counterpoint to the scenario or the situation that you've also described where there is perhaps this drop in funding, but huge amounts of talent may be emerging in, in this particular market. Ideas coming to the fore in the same way that we saw maybe post-2008 or in, in the 90s. And you know, I, actually, I actually think that resource scarcity helps with focus. If you have a finite number of days to do things, you will be much more ruthless about which things you do and which things you don't do. And I do think that um, there are certain things you can't do without funding, right? For sure. But less money being available might actually force clarity around the questions we were discussing earlier. What's your business model? Mm. And the other thing is that there are quite a few ideas that had a very open-ended return on investment. And for some of those, it was absolutely the right thing to do. Because say if you're passion capital and you've invested in Monzo, how many challenger banks have you seen in the last hundred years? How soon is soon for return on your investment? They didn't know when they were right. Mm. So it was it was left open-ended even before them. Revolut went down the crypto path. If you take that away, is the business model working? It, these are questions that these guys weren't forced to answer. And it was the right thing at the time because we were all learning. Now we know different. So I suspect that investment now will be like, show me your business plan. Show me when, when you'll know if something is not working. I think we'll find ourselves putting the things we've learned to practice much more than ever before. You know, beyond things like the business model, the focus, that ruthless focus on, on what's important. Are there any other key ingredients that make up this secret source of the, the path to profitability? Things that you'd recommend budding entrepreneurs about to jump into this? Yes, um, I'm actually, I'm working on a book on the patterns of success, but I've started doing some research on whether there is a pattern to the things people and companies are doing right. And the bad news is most of it is a combination of luck, moment in time, focus, you know, good people, which is too big to repeat, particularly luck, right? But I also think there's a pattern emerging in the, the research I'm doing that says, you know, the fundamentals are important. You can't work them out later. You can't start a business and not be 100% sure how you're going to make money for the first five years. You might get five years to get to it, or you might change your mind. You know, there's all these famous stories about how Slack was part of a video game and then they killed the video game, how Listerine was not a mouthwash, but a thing, industrial cleaner or something. Yep. Uh, there are all these stories, but what we don't often talk about is the fact that when Listerine was an industrial cleaner, they had a sense of what production would cost and what distribution will look like. 
and okay, that didn't work because somebody weirdly put it in their mouth and it tasted like, I don't even know how that transition happened. But the fact that you might not stick to it doesn't absolve you from having it. So I think one of the things I'm seeing both in my own experience and it's definitely emerging in the research is the fundamentals matter. You might change them, but you can't avoid working through them really early on. So a little bit earlier, we talked, I think you talked about some of the, the valuation cuts as well, and perhaps a sort of course correction, um, maybe back to a level of, of expected normality or, or realism, perhaps in the industry. Is this really that kind of course correction that the industry needed? Or does this have longer term impact as, as, as we think to the future of fintech? I think the answer is yes to both. And it's too early to call whether we're going to go back to behaving exactly the way we did in about six months time. Like this has been a very unusual year. Will the change stick or will you and I talk in a year's time and we're back to crazy valuations? Um, I think it goes back to what we were saying earlier about explaining things to people who are outside the industry. I have found it very hard to explain to my mom the idea of paper millionaires, of the fact that this valuation isn't real money, but it's real value in certain circumstances. It's very hard to explain it without making it sound like a Ponzi scheme. But the reality is it's a game that works. It's almost like, you know, once you get on the property ladder for your UK viewers and, and listeners, there are certain rules that affect you differently unless you decide to exit the game. So valuations are part of a secret language that makes a lot of sense inside the game and only affects the world outside in the case of, a, of an exit or a catastrophic failure. And, and if you speak to any investor, they can tell you that you can make the numbers dance if you want to, right? I can make you a millionaire right now by giving you a pound for 1% of your business, less than 1%. Uh, but you know what I mean? I can do that very easily. Yeah. Um, and we just need to be under understanding each other as to what it is we're doing. And I think that understanding definitely exists inside our, our world. With the SVB events, what happened in a closed circuit had a bit of a spillover on the outside. Yeah. Also with those narrow banks in the US, like Daylight uh, sadly closing their doors, two of the challengers in Australia returning their, their licenses. You and I can have a long conversation about why these things happen. And they don't all have one answer, but it has stopped being enclosed in a small environment of investors and entrepreneurs who knew what they were getting into. It's beginning to affect consumers. So is this the correction we needed? I would say yes. Will it stick? I don't know. It's too early to tell. Will it change the way we behave? Yes, but probably for the better. Because actually the vast majority of entrepreneurs I speak to are not in it for the money when they start. Now, if somebody says you can be a multimillionaire, you're not going to say no to that. But the vast majority of people I speak to both now and in my career for the last 20 years, want to solve a problem really, really passionately. If they make a lot of money in the process, great. Now, if you catch someone as they're about to IPO, of course, making money and doing it the right way becomes maybe top of your hierarchy of needs. But if we get to a more sensible way of funding, I actually don't think that the people who want to solve a problem will go away. They'll just do it differently and maybe make less money in the process, but that's okay, because for most of them, that is not the primary motivator. It's a really, really great take on it, actually. And, and, and again, from a product background, that is an intrinsic motivator for lots of people. It is about really understanding what someone 
up the value chain, let's call it, but some someone within a business is looking to try to do something that's frustrating, something that just doesn't work today. It's painful. And for lots of entrepreneurs, for lots of creators, that is one of the, the key driving factors, actually. I agree. 100%. And like, like me, let me give you an example from 10X, right? I keep joking to Anthony that if I was him, I'd be drinking pina coladas on a beach, not running a startup. And I don't even like pina colada. But... <laughs> He came out of a hugely successful career and was so frustrated that the technology he wanted didn't exist, that it became the legacy he chose to give the industry to create it. Now, that's a beautiful story, and and it worked the charm in recruiting me, to be honest with you, because I believe in this. But it also says a lot about the person, right? There is a a driver to fix a problem that's bugging you, and, and that problem is different for different people. So I don't think that will go away. Brilliant. Brilliant. It's probably a, a note of, of hope for the future and, and maybe a nod to anyone who, who also is also driven by some of those kind of like intrinsic motivators and, and, and solving real life human and business challenges. I think it's a, a lovely note probably to, to wrap up on. So it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you um, about a whole range of topics actually today. So, so thank you. Um, and thank you to all of our listeners who've tuned in. Um, hope you've found this uh, full of insight and, and inspiring for whatever journeys you go on next. So thank you for everyone who's joined us. This has been another episode of the Payments Innovation Podcast. Thanks for joining us here on Payments Innovation. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas about the show. Connect with Currency Cloud on Twitter or LinkedIn to find out more. And remember to subscribe via your favorite podcast player.